0: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
0: Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com.
1: How far is the Federal Reserve willing to go in its effort to support the market? What more can and will it do? And Paul, one area where people are looking at is, could the Federal Reserve expand its bond purchasing program beyond investment-grade debt to include some junk-rated debt? And it raises some serious questions about moral hazard as well as just credit risk.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Remember, we had uh, Ira Jersey from Bloomberg Intelligence on, I would say, more than a week ago, where he was the first one that kind of just said uh, they just think could double to close to $10 billion. And then I've heard that number uh, echoed uh, by others as well.
1: Yeah, echoed and then expanded upon with some saying it could reach $12 trillion in the not so distant uh, future. Uh, One person who has been tracking all of this very closely and has uh, the inside view when you talk about working at the uh, the Federal Reserve is Danielle DiMartino Booth, who joins us now. She did work for the Dallas Federal Reserve and currently has her own firm, where she analyzes all things credit uh, and beyond. Uh, And I'm just wondering, given the fact, Danielle DiMartino, Booth CEO of, uh, of of Quill Intelligence. What's your perspective in terms of what more the Federal Reserve can do?
2: Well, I think right now the sky is the limit. Uh, when back during the financial crisis, when I was inside the Fed, the purchase of corporate bonds was debated and 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 refuted. It was decided at the time that that was crossing the line. And, in in fact, I think Dodd-Frank tried to make sure that the line was never crossed again because it specifies that the Fed cannot extend credit to borrowers that are insolvent. But the workaround, the bypassing of the Federal Reserve Act uh, via a special purpose vehicle at the Treasury effectively means that because the loss goes to taxpayers and because the paper doesn't sit on the Fed's balance sheet, the Fed can buy whatever it wants.
0: So, Danielle, so give us a sense of kind of where you think, um, what more you would expect the Fed to do here. We finally have some fiscal stimulus, and we, we can talk about that in a moment. But staying with the Fed, what what's the next steps uh, for the Fed?
2: Well, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see what we do and do not hear out of today's minutes at 2 p.m. Um, you know, some people don't realize that the CARES Act um, actually allows Jerome Powell to use his judgment to determine whether or not. Federal Open Market Committee meetings, um, emergency meetings, uh, apply to the Sunshine Act, which requires divulgence afterwards in the form of some some, some form of minutes. So in that we're not going to see that, the minutes will or will not hint at whether the Fed's going to cross that investment grade to junk line. And that is, UBS just put a report out that was on the Bloomberg Terminal. That is where everybody's focus is right now. I've even gotten questions as to whether or not the Fed can put a timestamp on fallen angels and come in after the fact and buy triple B debt that has already been downgraded if it if it was downgraded after March the 23rd. These are fascinating things running around. But if you look at one thing, and that's the compression that we've seen in junk bond yields, I think the market has moved on to concluding that the Fed is actually going there next and potentially stocks via ETFs as uh, the Swiss National Bank and the Bank of Japan already do. So what's
1: the argument for the Federal Reserve stepping into junk bonds here?
2: I don't think there is an argument. I think it it crosses a very dark red line. I'm writing about this today, in fact. Um, There's a reason that that Dodd-Frank specifies that the Fed cannot extend credit to borrowers, quote-unquote, borrowers that are insolvent.
1: Well, but, but, okay, I guess on the, on the counter side, you could say the Federal Reserve is looking to prevent uh, systemic defaults across the board that could end up wiping out pensions, as well as insurance companies and municipalities and, and, and whoever else, and that a lot of these companies would have been viable if they hadn't been closed down, man, uh, mandatory closed down, based on the government's policies. What would you say to that argument?
2: I'm certainly sympathetic to that idea, but the fact of the matter is, uh, major shops across Wall Street, Morgan Stanley put it out a few weeks, in fact, before the coronavirus outbreak hit that 42% of triple B bonds were effectively junk rated. So I think the rot has been in the bond market indices long before, uh, this emergency, uh, broke out. And for that reason, and especially given the sheer size of the $10 trillion, Uh, U.S. corporate bond market, there's plenty that the Fed can do with companies that are deemed as being viable and solvent.
0: All right, Danielle, let's switch over to fiscal policy. We got the $2 trillion uh, plus uh, policy uh, recently that looks like Congress is working on something perhaps as large as another trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus. Is that enough?
2: Well, you know, right now, it's a matter of chasing time. We don't know if it's enough because the, the money hasn't gotten into the hands of companies that are truly insolvent and viable. And that would be a lot of the smaller businesses that are in something of a holding pattern, hoping to get through the paperwork morass and get that money delivered to them. So you can listen to all you want at press conferences about increasing the amount of funding available, but you actually have to get the cash in the hands of the small businesses. And I think that that is what's critical
1: at this juncture. How worried are you, Danielle, about an increase in consumer defaults?
2: Um, I I think that it depends on how long you can push forbearance out and whether or not there's a second wave of the virus, even as the United States makes plans to come out of this. Um, So it it really will be a matter of how long the federal government is able to provide forbearance. Uh, But that just applies to mortgages. Look, we've got, there are car companies that are extending 30 days at a time at this point on auto loans. Um there's credit card defaults that are going up. A new survey out of the New York Fed stated that quite a few Americans right now are, are concerned that they can't make it past three months without defaulting on their debts. so you know we we entered the covid nineteen crisis with subprime auto loan delinquencies at recessionary levels. so I, I think it's it's a bit naive to say that we're not going to see um, more uh, more more households falling into arrears in the days and weeks that come, especially given we're seeing so much stress come out of households that make more than $100,000.
0: Right, Danielle Martino Booth. Thank you so much for joining us. We, as always, appreciate your thoughts and commentary. Danielle's a CEO and director of intelligence at Quill Intelligence. She's also a former advisor to Dallas Dallas Federal Reserve, and she is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. So uh, she is quite busy. Uh, Lisa really liked her comments about you know, you know, the consumer credit is going to be an issue. It's not just mortgages here. We're going to see it across the credit spectrum, uh, and the longer. Uh, people are out of work, the bigger, obviously, the bigger the issue will be for the economy.
1: I was struck by a common idea that markets are forward-looking. And Paul, I'm struggling to understand how markets look forward When there is no guidance and when a growing number of companies are scrapping any guidance or expected to do so. And this is sort of one of the main conundrums. How do you invest at a time of such little visibility? Joining us now is Phil Orlando, somebody who always has a view and has been really right uh, repeatedly when it came to some bullish calls over the past few years. Chief Equity Market Strategist for Federated Hermes. uh, Joining us from Westchester, Phil, how do you deal with this conundrum, the fact that we have very little visibility into the future as far as corporate earnings or the economy?
3: This was a question that we addressed ourselves in the early stages of this uh, market down thirty five percent in in five weeks the the sharpest decline from a record high to a bear market in history. And uh, technicals weren't making any sense. Fundamentals weren't making any sense. And as you said, with uh, 40-some-odd states closed and with something in the neighborhood of a quarter to a third of the global population sheltering in place, S&P 500 companies have withdrawn guidance. So what are you as an investor to do? what we did is created an alternative methodology for analyzing what was going on and and not to be too simplistic about it but i call it my three-legged stool and what we did is is we needed to get our hands around three issues monetary policy fiscal policy and social policy in order to gauge the trajectory of this disease and and what might the implications be on the uh the economy and the financial markets and and so far i i think the the work that we've done here has given us a sense uh directionally how this thing is going to play out
0: so phil i'd like to go to maybe that third leg of the stool that you were talking about which is kind of Consumer consumer behavior. You know, we're going to get another really brutal jobless claims number tomorrow. We're going to get incredible record unemployment here very soon. How do you think the consumer and consumer behavior is going to come out of this thing
3: on the other side? I I think we're going to be fine because what what this situation, this as disastrous as it is, is not. The Great Recession of 07 09 or the bursting of the tech bubble in 00 to 03, this was a forced shutdown of the economy, based upon the ultimate black swan, an exogenous medical shock that we didn't do this to ourselves. This just sort of happened, and so we're all doing the right thing, which is you know locking down and sheltering in place. And we did it in March, and we're going to do it in April. And and if the trajectory of the illness and the mortality plays out the way we think it will um, then we're going to start to slowly reopen things at some point early in May and and the equity market as a forward-looking discounting mechanism is at least in our view is saying okay as we get into the second half of this year you've got this enormous pent-up demand uh, that is going to start to be fulfilled people have been depriving themselves of uh, you know, tomahawk ribeye steaks and nice bottles of Cabernet for a couple of months, and we haven't seen a show or a ball game, and and we're going to want to do something. And and I think the consumer is going to start to come back, um, you know, illness permitting, in in the second half of this year.
1: Phil, it sounds like you're pretty bullish. Is that accurate?
3: That is accurate. Um, as as we look at the three paths that this thing could take. There's the L-shaped recovery where you just go straight down and, and there's no recovery. You just, you're in a deep recession for a couple of years. We put the probability of that at about 10%. There's the V-shaped recovery where you come straight down, which has happened, and then you go straight back up and everything's fine after a couple of rocky months. Um, we've got about a 10% probability on that. Our base case is sort of a U-shaped recovery where we're going to bounce yeah. around here, a couple of quarters of negative GDP, but then the market and the economy are going to come back strong in the second half of the year. But the, the key issue here is, is we've got to see the trajectory of the illnesses and the mortalities yeah. peak. Now, our best guess, based upon our analysis, was that that was going to happen Holy Week, and this is Holy Week. And, and, so, and, and frankly, I've got to tell you, we're, we're, we're pleased – with what we think we're seeing here in the metropolitan area, which is, you know, sort of the, uh, uh, the, the epicenter of the entire world.
1: Yeah, just, just about 30 seconds. Uh, given the fact that we're seeing statistics that nearly a third of U.S. apartment renters didn't pay any of their April rent, uh, that more than a million workers in the retail sector have been furloughed, what makes you think that uh, American consumers will be in a position to spend the way they did before this?
3: Well, I think from a policy standpoint, monetary and fiscal, we've thrown everything at it. Uh, You look at the extension of unemployment insurance, the additional $600 weekly bonuses on top of of regular uh, benefits, uh, the the fact that I think landlords recognize that they're not going to be collecting any rents for the next couple of months. uh, I think all of that is sort of built in to, to what are going to be disastrous numbers March, April, probably through the balance of the second quarter. But I think the spirit of the American people and the desire to get back in the game is is going to allow us to start to come back to life in the second half of the year.
0: Phil Orlando, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that. We hope your optimistic view proves correct. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist for Federated Hermes, uh, about $89 billion under management. So he's certainly talking for a lot of money. Joining us on the phone from Westchester and Lisa. Uh, Phil's always been uh, bullish, always been optimistic. He's, you know, during this bull market, he's been absolutely spot on here. I think the real question I have is, you know, has consumer behavior changed for at least, not just the the near term, but maybe even the intermediate term? And how's that going to affect the economy and spending habits going forward? And so we'll we'll have to see, because that's really a big, big uh, issue going forward. Part of that $2 trillion of fiscal stimulus that was approved uh, last week includes cash directly for consumers. The question is, will it be enough and will it arrive quickly enough? For that, we turn to Greg McBride. He's the chief financial analyst at Bankrate.com. They did some recent survey work on that. Greg, thanks so much for joining us on the phone. What did your survey tell you?
4: It really shows how badly uh, so many Americans need this money. and I think that's evident by the fact that 80% 80% of those that expect to receive a, a payment say it's somewhat or very important to their near-term financial well-being. And also when we see how people plan to use that money, uh, 50% said they were going to use it for monthly bills. 41% said they would use it for day-to-day essentials. Um, there's some overlap there because uh, it was you could pick more than one. Uh, but I think, you know, those were head and shoulders above things like adding to savings. And paying down debt. So uh, I think that really illustrates that even those that are still working, they don't have much of a cushion. And if they're concerned about the sustainability of their employment or income going forward, that this is going to be a valuable cushion.
1: Greg, I was struck by your report. It showed, yes, it's a cushion that's valuable, but it's not nearly a big enough cushion. And the study that Bankrate.com did showed that 31% of U.S. adults who anticipate receiving a stimulus check believe that it would not be enough to sustain their financial well-being for one month. So is it going to be ineffective when this money actually does get to consumers, given the fact that it hasn't even gotten to any of them yet? Was it worth it?
4: Well, I mean, I'll, I'll leave the whether it's worth it up. I think that's something we can evaluate in hindsight. But, you know, I think for those that have been furloughed or, or laid off, have suffered an income disruption, uh, the timing is critical because it can really bridge the gap between the last paycheck and the first unemployment check. You know, a lot of people are in that limbo right now. Um, and so the timing, I think, is, is you know, really, really important for that. But, you know, it, it's not going to be a, a panacea by any means. And, and, you know, when we look at the economic fallout from this, the financial pain that households feel is something that's going to be with us for a long time. I mean, it's going to be measured in months and years, not something days and weeks. So long after the stay-at-home orders have been lifted, there's going to be a financial hangover that a lot of households are going to continue to deal with for some time thereafter.
0: So it sounds like from your survey that uh, the respondents feel like there needs to be more. Is that right?
4: Yeah, I mean and and I think a lot of that is just, you know, we you know, we've only really kind of touched the tip of the iceberg on unemployment. Ten million people have filed for unemployment in the last two weeks. That's just those that have been able to file. We know there are more that haven't even been able to get through yet. Um and, you know, unfortunately more layoffs to come. So uh yeah, I think there's a recognition of that on, on the part of consumers. And even coming into this, uh, you know, there were a lot of households that you know it, it wouldn't take much to kind of put them off their rails financially you know we found that 41% of americans this was back in january which seems like a lifetime ago 41% of americans at that point could afford an unplanned expense um, of $1,000 and pay for it out of their savings, just 41%. So, um, you know, and that was at a point where unemployment was at a 50-year low, and obviously things have really changed dramatically since then.
1: So, Greg, this is an interesting kind of development, given the fact that the American consumer was praised as being the bedrock of the recovery that we saw for a decade that came crashing to a halt uh, in the past month or two, and I'm wondering, going forward, how able some of these consumers will be to go back to their previous spending habits. I mean, we were speaking with Phil Orlando earlier in the show, Federated Hermes, and he was saying he expects that when this all does lift, everybody will want to run back to Disneyland or go out and to, to, to get a big stake. Is that going to be feasible given the destruction to the balance sheets in a lot of households? Uh, I think they're, you're going to see t- two different extremes. I mean, yes, there are going to be those that have cabin
4: fever, and the first place they're headed is the airport or, uh, you know, something they want to, you know, get out and kind of resume normal life. And, you know, they're, they're still employed. At, at, you know, they were able to do that. But there are going to be millions that are still unemployed and or that get reemployed but at a lower level of income, and they're not going to be able to generate the same level of spending that they had in the past. And, uh, you know, that's coming out of the last recession. The the recovery was one that had a, you know, very slow growth trajectory, you know, depending upon how long we see elevated unemployment this time around, you know, we could see something similar.
0: So, Greg, are you looking at, uh, you know, mortgage debt, uh, credit card debt? What are you looking at for as it relates to the consumer?
4: Well, you know, in terms of monthly payments, uh, because people have been able to refinance at lower rates. Uh, the the, the strain on the budget in terms of monthly payments as a percentage of income is some of the lowest it's been in 35 years. The actual debt is bigger, but, uh, you know, people have lessened the pain of those monthly payments by virtue of, of low interest rates. Uh, fortunately, with widespread forbearance and payment relief options, um, there are uh, ways that people can buy themselves some valuable time, uh, getting a forbearance on that mortgage or the car loan, you know, those big ticket items that really uh, carve a big hole out of the monthly budget, and that could be critical. I mean, if, if you're only seeing an income disruption for a couple of months, being able to get a reprieve on that mortgage or car loan for a couple of months could really make a big difference. And uh, you know, in, in being able to, to sort of resume normalcy from a financial standpoint, uh, you know, once we're given the all clear.
1: Greg McBride, thank you so much for being with us. Greg McBride, chief financial analyst for Bankrate.com. <music>
0: Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Tay Kim. Covers all things technology for Bloomberg Opinion. And we're going to talk about Zoom. Here's a stock that's just about doubled uh, since the pandemic uh, really crossed our desk here as people go more and more to remote learning. But now there's some concerns about security of those streams. Tay, thanks so much for joining us. Give us the latest on what's going on with Zoom. I know it's being sued for fraud and mounting security concerns. What's going on?
5: So I think there is some legitimate criticisms for what they've done. Um, Their marketing has been overly aggressive. They've been misleading with this term end-to-end encryption, so they're getting a lot of scrutiny for that. They actually use this less robust form of encryption called TLS security, which is used by many web services like Gmail. So I think they might get fined for that.
1: So let's just take a test step back. Uh, Zoom got a lot of interest over the past few years as people thought about the possibility of a greater shift to an online workplace. That's been accelerated by the COVID nineteen related shutdowns. Now Zoom finds itself the subject of some unwanted scrutiny, in addition to an incredible surge in popularity. Can you just give us a sense of the liability aspect of this, aside from the legal areas of just you know people moving away from the platform or perhaps looking to regulate it more closely what's the latest
5: I think like I said they might get fined on this kind of aggressive marketing they've done but I also think some of the blame has been overblown they've been getting a lot of criticism over this zoom bombing thing where people pranksters pranksters get into these calls but I think most of that is due to people not enabling these basic security features like passwords, waiting room, invitation-only meetings, which weren't, weren't enabled by default. And now Zoom has enabled these security features by default to stop these things. So it's almost like if I put my cell phone out there on the Internet, like I'm going to get crank calls. So Zoom, a lot of the users of Zoom, it was mainly used for enterprise uh, customers before this great surge over the last few weeks. And I think they, they, some of the blame might be overblown there. All right, so Tay,
0: so what can Zoom really do here? I mean, is it just some new software, some new encryption? What can they do?
5: So they already said that they're going to do the end-to-end encryption. It's going to take a few months. Uh, this morning they hired the former security chief of Facebook that's to look at all the practices and try to improve their software and flaws. But a lot of it is just educating people on how to use these security features that are already there. Um, and they really they made that mistake. They didn't see the changing nature of their user base from enterprises to consumers over the last few weeks. Now Zoom is literally the most popular app on the App Store. Uh, it went from like 10 million users in December to 200 million in March. So it's like more popular than TikTok these days. So they really need to recognize it's a different moment for them. They, they really make the best, easy-to-use, high-quality software that everyone wants to use because it's so much better than their competitors, and they really need to realize that they have to do a better marketing and education for their customers.
1: Paul, I will say, full disclosure, I'm having a Zoom uh, Passover Seder tonight with my oh, excited cool. family and my nine year old, uh, eight year old I guess he still is. Uh, he has been having Zoom calls with his friends. Um, he sets yep. up little meetings with his friends <laughs> all the time. I am wondering though, when it comes to an official capacity, when it's not a Passover Seder, or um, a, a Good Friday event with your family, or if it's your, for your eight year old. Are office spaces moving more to Microsoft and some of these other platforms perhaps that offer a greater degree of security and perhaps have thought this through a little bit more, Tay?
5: So offices are moving to Microsoft Teams. Um, New York City actually banned uh, Zoom for their teachers over last weekend. So there is a move by some, to move towards Microsoft and Google. But I- I'll say again is that people, a lot of enterprises still want to use Zoom because it's It works better. Um, There's less lag, there's higher reliability. So I I think over the next 30 and 90 days, they'll get through this. They'll probably come out with better security uh, in terms of encryption. And I I think actually the company deserves some praise, too, because it's providing this enormously helpful service that's enabling hundreds of millions of people to kind of cope in these difficult circumstances. Um, It's providing a sense of community and social socialization that, um, that people really need right now. So um, they have some issues. They're going to fix those issues, and um, we'll, we'll see what happens.
0: Take Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Take Kim, Bloomberg Opinion Technology columnist, and you can find all of his work and the work of all of Bloomberg Opinion on Bloomberg.com opinion and on the terminal, O-P-I-N. Go so you look at that chart of Zoom Technologies, Lisa. It's just extraordinary. It's just kind of puts. I mean, had a great IPO, one of the good IPOs from twenty nineteen in a year where there weren't a whole lot of them,
1: and yeah. then
0: you know just around kind of the end of the, uh, you know, it's just started to really, really rocket up over the last several months, and it's pulled back here on some of these security uh, concerns here. But uh, clearly, well, as Tay was just uh, mentioning, it's probably the best one out there, the best technology out there.
1: Well, it's the easiest to use. I don't know. It's been really interesting to figure out how do you have, you know, video calls and conferences with your family for Easter. I mean, how are, are you guys thinking about this or anything to, yeah, to try it, to bring it's people I mean, together? It,
0: you know, it's, it, you know, FaceTime is, for, is, is popular, but Microsoft's got a product out there, but Zoom seems to have really uh, taken off. And again, as Ty mentioned, it's just a really good, easy to use technology, um, but they've got to get Whoa. that security thing right.
1: And also, you know, when you're having a family affair on one of these platforms, you have to kind of have an agenda and treat it like a meeting. Otherwise, it's complete bedlam. And everyone <laughs> talks at once, and you don't know what's going on. And everyone just sort of ends up smiling at each other until it's time to say goodbye. That's something I've noticed.